ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Y Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Matt Likens. Matt grew up in a lower middle class family and became quite familiar with the concept of scarcity. As a result of this upbringing, Matt learned quickly that he was going to have to work hard for anything and everything he wanted. After graduating from college, he went to work for Johnson & Johnson, representing the industrial tape division. I know, you're on the edge of your seat already. Quickly realizing his urge to do more meaningful work, Matt left J&J and joined Baxter Healthcare, where he spent the next 23 years in a variety of roles across the globe. After experiencing working for many different types of leaders, Matt learned how to emulate the traits and behaviors he felt were the right leadership traits. He also learned the cruel effects of ego and narcissism in leadership and the damage it can have on an organization. Taking all of his lessons learned, he took a leap and joined a startup in Arizona called Althera as their CEO and his first stint as a CEO. After operating the company for a handful of years, Matt and the leadership team decided it might be important to declare a purpose for the organization beyond growing top and bottom line. We'll explore what it means to lift lives. Matt is a great storyteller and shares invaluable lessons and advice for leaders across all industries with an emphasis on why culture matters so much in today's business world. If you're in a leadership role or are about to be, this is one interview you'll find full of gems. Enjoy this special interview with Matt Likens. Well, hello, Matt Likens. I cannot thank you enough for joining us this afternoon. I've been looking forward to this for a really long time, and uh, I just have to say, it's a pleasure to chat with you. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Brian. Uh, my pleasure. So uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I want to I start, um, and I actually want to start, uh, let's, let's take a trip down memory lane. Growing up, uh, your parents insisted that you become financially self-sufficient as early as possible in your life. And I think I read that uh, by the time you had finished high school, you had had jobs as a paper boy, a snow shoveler, uh, certainly no stranger to a lawnmower, and, uh, and a muck farmer. I I'm curious, share with us a little bit about how your upbringing influenced what your career has become. Yeah, so you know, I'm not uh, a very introspective person, uh, but I will try to dial back just a few years ago and try to figure this one out. I think Brian that uh, we grew up uh, in—I can just call it a uh, let's call it a lower middle class uh, type of environment—and so uh, we got used to scarcity. Uh, and if we wanted to have spending money, if I wanted to have a bicycle, if I wanted to do some other things, then um, I worked with my parents to figure out ways I could earn money and do that. Um, and, and so I, I think what it instilled in uh, all four of uh, us children, myself and three siblings, um, is the fact that, you know, don't look for anyone else uh, to really provide support. Be ready to do things on your own and make things happen and be industrious and uh, and actually got a lot of satisfaction out of that. And, you know, I never realized that a lot of other kids were in different situations where a lot of what they had was paid for, you know, by their parents or grandparents or others. So it just was a way of life growing up. 
So when you graduated from, from college, uh, your first role was in sales at Johnson & Johnson, correct? Yes, that's right. I was uh, in a training program in New Brunswick, their uh, corporate headquarters, of course, New Brunswick, New Jersey, uh, and then was uh, placed in a uh, sales position for the Permacell Tape Division of J&J. So it had nothing to do with healthcare. One of the all about industrial tape, and and uh, and I got a sales territory based in Minneapolis and St. Paul, so the Twin Cities, and uh, J&J at that time had about a 10% market share in the industry of industrial tape, and we competed with 3M with about 80% market share, and of course 3M's headquarters is in St. Paul, so so part of the learning there was. Uh, uh, I learned uh, rejection very early in my career. Um, uh, early and often, I was rejected <laughs> as far as why someone would not want to use my uh, industrial tape and 3Ms instead. So valuable lesson. Well, I think one of the other valuable lessons that uh, that I recall seeing is that you know being a part of a large organization sometimes size can be synonymous with complacency and obviously a lot of competition with 3M in the industrial adhesive market is that is that a lesson that uh, you'd still would point to today that the larger the organization sometimes complacency can set in yeah, I think a couple of things really. I see. So a lesson was rejection. I mean, it's it's hard to hear no and all the reasons why time after time. But over a period of time, I got a little smarter and I didn't ask for all the business and and thought that gee, maybe I could get since we only had 10% market share. If I got 10% of their business, I was even, right? If I got 20% of their business, it was actually you know twice as much as I was supposed to have. And so I made it a point to try to become the best alternative supplier by securing 20% of their volume uh, that I could because our product lines were pretty similar. And I found that uh, a number of the buyers who were trying to manage risk, supply risk and pricing risk and other things were quite amenable to having us as a 20% as a second supplier. And so at that point and also later in my career, anytime I was in a situation where there was a dominant supplier inevitably they would become satisfied with what they had, complacent, and and would often just take the business for granted rather than working as hard for that business as they, as they had done, you know, when they were just starting out. So always room for a great second supplier or for the little guy to come in and earn at least a portion of the business and who know who knows where that could lead. So I'm curious about Johnson and Johnson, and one of the, uh, well, at least in my opinion, one of the things that they're famous for is their credo. And for those that don't know the J and J credo, it's uh, essentially uh, sort of the operating principle of the organization, and it starts out saying, uh, "We believe our first responsibility is to the doctors, nurses, and patients, to the mothers and fathers, and all others who use our products and services." And then it goes on, and there's a couple of paragraphs, and the final sentence, which I find so fascinating. Uh, and quite revolutionary, given that J&J is not a brand new organization. It, it says at the very end that when we operate according to all of the principles that are laid out in their credo, the stockholders should, and I emphasize should, realize a fair return. I'm curious, 
how did this, how was this credo as a, a new member of the team back when you had graduated from school? How did this credo sit with you? Is it something that was really emphasized? And then how did this credo uh, sort of influence your leadership style? I know there's a lot of questions in there, but I want to talk about this for a minute because I find it fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think the credo, you know, was established uh, decades ago, and it still resonates today. Even as you said, the beginning and end of the credo today, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I will contrast it with, um, so I, I was only at J&J for three years, so the credo didn't keep me there longer than that. But I saw that uh, industrial tape, as it were, strapping tape, masking tape, duct tape, you know, actually 300 different kinds of tape, but it's still not very exciting. And I, I really did want to get into healthcare and more meaningful work. Um, but, but the credo, they have things uh, in the right priority, right? So if you do what's right by the physician, by the patient, by the customer, you know, the, the shareholder value, the stock price takes care of itself if you're really focused on the right things. Contrast that to Baxter Healthcare, where I went next and spent 23 years, so they kept me longer. Um, there was, to me, way too much emphasis on building shareholder value but not as much of how do you get to that point, right? It, it was like, what do we need to do to build shareholder value? Not let's do all the right things. Let's focus on the right things and kind of let that take care of itself. So to, to me, that was the contrast. And um, I, I won't make the analogy to today, but you know, my, my experience in a startup now has been kind of an accumulation of a variety of experiences where I've tried to, uh, wean out those that are most meaningful and, and, and you know, leave kind of the, uh, the other stuff behind and just bring forward what, what I felt was most valuable. So given that you were at J&J &J for three years and then went on to spend, you know, 23 years at Baxter, you know, the contrast between the two organizations and the emphasis on doing what's right at J&J, &J, which then should lead to a fair return for shareholders. And then, as you put it, uh, you know, the, the, the major emphasis at Baxter on let's create shareholder value. Did you know at the time, I guess maybe a better way to ask the question is how quickly in your career at Baxter during that 23 year span, did you begin to recognize the major focal difference, the focus difference between how J and J was operating and how Baxter was operating? Yeah, it took me quite a while, but here's the thing, Brian. I think, you know, again, JJ is still a phenomenal company, you know, one of the top companies in the world. But, but anytime you get to a certain critical mass, things slow down. And the employees who relish being at a very large company for a long period of time get more and more risk averse. And so, uh, over time, it gets very cumbersome and very bureaucratic and, and the potential of, you know, a really smart group of people being able to make quick decisions and, you know, if they're wrong, um, you know, have fast failures and move on to a better decision based upon that, that kind of goes out the door. And, and so um, Baxter was, you know, was still no J&J, &J, right? So it was a mid-sized healthcare company when I joined them. Uh, and 
within specific businesses of Baxter, you could have nimbleness and you could have an entrepreneurial spirit and you could grow new businesses. But then uh, eventually over time, you know, those additional processes and uh, the, the, the lack of responsiveness just starts to creep in. Took me a while to, <laughs> to get to that point, obviously <laughs> 23 years. Uh, but but it, it just seems like uh, that's the way nature works. Well, and during that 23-year span, if I have it right, that you had uh, nine different roles relocated almost a half dozen times. I'm, I'm curious, and if I have the numbers wrong, please correct me. Um, on previous interviews that I've done, I've talked about this concept called repotting, and this concept became somewhat uh, – uh, famous is probably the, the wrong word, but certainly more notable, uh, a retired Stanford dean, Ernie Arbuckle, wrote a, uh, an article about this concept of repotting that basically states, and I'm, I'm giving you the, the short and dirty version, that roughly every 10 years or so, it makes a lot of sense for us as individuals to pick ourselves up and essentially move into a brand new opportunity, uh, different business a different industry, just something fresh, something new so that you can bring all of the experiences you've collected up to that point and lend new perspective to maybe problems that are continually being looked at the same way. I'm curious, did all of the moves, the different jobs, did did that, was that essentially you repotting yourself within Baxter to keep things fresh? Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, Brian, but I think that's a pretty apt analogy. Um, you know, I, I was within uh, a business that was blood collection and transfusion medicine, and then that business, the Fenwall division, was merged with the Highland division, which was involved with human plasma fractionation, producing products like Factor 8 for hemophilia, uh, cryoprecipitate, uh, immune uh, globulins. Uh, we got into an immunotherapy business. So some of the dynamics of combining businesses at the corporation to create leverage in the marketplace led to new opportunities over time. So every two to three years, when I felt like I was ready for a new learning opportunity, uh, one appeared on the horizon. And, and that's why I stayed so long. I, at every step along the way, I felt like I was in a new period of learning and was expanding my own capabilities and um, and really enjoyed it. So, I, you know, I, I talk a little bit negatively about some of the uh, characteristics of very large enterprises, but uh, I have to say that, you know, you don't stay somewhere for as long as I did if it's a negative experience. So, uh, tremendously helpful, lots of different opportunities. Uh, I do think uh, maybe the most um, uh, valuable was uh, when my family and I moved over to Munich, Germany, and I was the vice president of marketing for Baxter Biotech Europe in that role. And our children, Greg and Alexa, were nine and six years old at the time. Uh, and they moved uh, uh, into the Munich International School with 42 different nationalities represented. My wife, Nancy, became the um, president of the parent-teacher organization. And I'm telling you, it was like running a United Nations meeting. I yeah. bet. So, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was uh, just a broadening experience for all of us. It's one of those times, Brian, when you come home from work, you say, hey, hey, you know, an interesting idea came up today. They're talking about us moving to, to Germany. And it's like, okay, 
are you kidding me? I mean, this is just not a great time for that. And then three years later, you know, you come home from your job in Munich, right? And say, hey, they, they say there's an opportunity back in the States. You know, it sounds like a pretty good opportunity. Are you kidding Kidding me? It's not a great time. You know, we really don't want to go back. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, it, it was... Uh, it was phenomenal from that standpoint. And, you know, one of my pieces of advice to uh, people beginning their careers is just make sure whatever role you're in, that you're in a position to learn every day. And don't worry so much about title uh, or income. Easy to say that, right? But but let's make sure it's a learning situation. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I have to ask, given that I've got uh, two young ones myself, a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old, uh, what did that experience, the international experience, you know, how, how did that impact your kids? How, how are they different today as a result of that experience? If I had to boil it down, I would say they accept differences very readily. They, they learned at, at that stage that being different, first of all, they were different, but, you know, they went to school with so many folks from so many different places that it was exciting. It was interesting to them. And they realized that, you know, we, different is not bad. Different is merely different and let's all get along. And so I think, yeah, if you can learn that at an early age, I think there'd be a lot, a lot less tension, a lot less problem in the world today. Uh, if, if we could all get that type of exposure. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's, let me, let's uh, stay on this different uh, topic just for a moment. So 23 years at Baxter, uh, nine different roles, relocated five different times. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess you had a lot of different uh, individuals you interacted with, a lot of different leaders. How did that 23-year experience with as many different opportunities as you had, how did that impact your leadership style or your leadership philosophy? Yeah, it's back to what I referred to before is, again, each supervisor that I had um, operated, you know, in their own way. And I would always try to find what did they do that really well that I might try to emulate. And then inevitably, they may have some uh, characteristics um, that I didn't think were very attractive. And, and it, it'd be valuable to see those as well, knowing that the last thing I would want to emulate are those things. So, you know, if you could get one, you know, gem from each person you're reporting to or each leader of the organizations you're involved with uh, and can carry that forward, that, gee, if I ever get to a position where I have people reporting to me or I have a broader responsibility, then this is a characteristic that that I think is an effective one and, and does it resonate for you personally? So, Again, I, I think that was really valuable. Uh, I would imagine. So 23 years at Baxter is a long, long time. And here you are uh, as president and CEO of Ulthera. So maybe you can share a little bit. Where did Ulthera come from? I know there was, a, if my memory serves, and something I read was a partnership actually back uh, to, with, with J&J where you started. Uh, maybe you can share a little bit about the, the emergence of Ulthera. Yeah, if you if you don't mind, maybe I'll go back to the circumstances upon which I left Baxter in Great. January of 2001. So, uh, you know, as you get to, to a certain point in your career, you know, I would get calls from executive recruiters, otherwise known as headhunters from time to time. And, and at that point, 
you know, after that long with Baxter, you think, gee, am I going to retire here? And all along, you know, to be that long with J&J and Baxter, I mean, I'm the farthest thing from an entrepreneur, at least on paper, that you can imagine. But I always wanted to get into something that was at an early stage. I wondered what it was like when Bill Graham and, and the other folks who, who began the, the Baxter odyssey, you know, in the 1930s, what was it like then? How do you start a business? How do you get it into be a seven, eight, ten billion dollar uh, opportunity? And so you get a call. There's a well-funded startup in South Florida. They'd raised one hundred and eighty million dollars of venture capital. Uh, and that seemed to be the one. They had 14 different licensing agreements, a uh, variety of drugs, diagnostics, and devices. It was called GMP Companies, and uh, we moved down there. In early 2001, I became the uh, quasi-chief operating officer. It wasn't exactly that. Um, and over the next five years, um, learned just about everything not to do in a startup. Uh, which was also, you know, very, very, very frustrating at times, but also very valuable longer term. Uh, and, and that led to the Altera opportunity. So I know I didn't quite answer your question, but uh, uh, and Altera actually came to my attention because of a former J&J colleague who knew that I had left GMP companies and knew that this medical device focused ultrasound company in Arizona was looking for a CEO. Uh, and and that's what brought me out here. That's fascinating. And so you know uh, the GMP experience uh, obviously taught you a lot of what not to do type lessons. Are there any any one or two in particular that uh, still resonate? As I can't believe they ran the business this way. Yeah. So so one was how uh, ego uh, and narcissism at the top of the house. Uh, can really spoil the broth completely. That that you know, as the CEO of any organization, has got to value every person in the organization. Doesn't matter the role; you, everyone's important. Um, second thing is, 180 million dollars is a lot of money, but if it's not allocated um, in a spirit of scarcity, then it goes away faster than you can imagine. Um, and so we had these 14 licensing agreements. Clearly, there were two or three that were more promising or um, had the promise of getting to market before the others and possibly generating revenue and help, helping to support the development of the other technologies. Um, yet the company felt like each of the 14 was almost like children and you treat all of your children equally versus practicing portfolio management, and, you know, and really uh, focusing your resources on those most promising technologies. So, you know, it's, it's pretty basic, but, but we did not practice that. And uh, that, I think, ended up being the death knell of the company. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. So uh, back to the Althera. So you find yeah. out uh, through a former J&J colleague that there's this company in, in Arizona that's looking for a CEO. Uh, you obviously got the gig. What was it at the time about Althera that was so attractive for you? Well, it was an opportunity to, to be a CEO, which I had not done before. Um, I needed a job uh, with um, our son uh, um, 
is still being in college, our daughter getting ready to head off uh, to Indiana University, which I think you're familiar with. I sure <laughs> am. Sure. Go Hoosiers. Go Hoosiers there. Yeah, that, that's wonderful. So, um, and I met the founder, uh, Dr. Michael Slayton, uh, who, you know, I affectionately call our mad Russian scientist because he is a brilliant uh, Russian scientist who grew up in Moscow. Uh, and I thought he and I hit it off very well personally. Um, he, we're both big sports fans. Uh, he was still very active and playing tennis and basketball, and I do a lot of that as well. So when I was out here first for the first three or four months without Nancy or, or either the, the kids, um, every weekend we get together to, to play ball and, and to talk through how we're going to make this thing work. So um, it, it was, uh, that's how it started. Tell me how the concept and purpose of lifting lives came to be for Althera. Yeah, we, we didn't really get to that until about 2013. And I moved out here in July of 06. Um, it's just a quick story. So, so Michael was very confident in late July of 06 that since we, Althera, had already sent in a 510K, which is a regulatory document to, to the FDA to try to get clearance for technology so we could commercialize it. So he was confident we were 90 days away from commercialization. So, you know, Matt, I must have you out here. You have to start. And my background is more commercialization than it is uh, the, the operational side of a, a business. And so I hurried out here and, and lo and behold, three and a half years later, we got FDA clearance. So it, it tends to always take a little longer than one thinks. Uh, three so months, three years, you know, it's just, we're splitting hairs, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So. So in the meantime, we, we got it cleared in Europe with a certificate of European compliance by mid-08 and started generating revenue in late 08. And, and so we actually had two big, hairy, audacious goals to start with, and then we had seven operating principles. And then we had our uh, daily huddles, which ended up being called a 907 meeting. And, and eventually we got around to maybe we should have a, a bigger idea here. Maybe we should try to have a purpose other than growing top line and growing bottom line. And, and that's how we kind of got into the lifting lives type of situation. How did that even hit the radar? Like why did that thought of maybe we should do something beyond just top and bottom line growth as a real uh, purpose or mission for what the organization's doing? Where Did you recall where it actually came from and why that hit you? Yeah, I, I do. Exactly. So you have to understand that at Baxter for all of those years, our motto was critical therapies for life-threatening conditions. Now, you might accuse us of taking ourselves a little too serious, Brian. But, you know, when you're there for as long as I was there, you actually believe that, you know, you're changing the world, right? The patients are you know, fortunate enough to benefit from our apheresis systems or dialysis approaches or our factor eight for hemophilia, they're much better served than anything else they could utilize. Uh, and, and then you transition into Ulthera, which is uh, in aesthetic medicine. 
So there's real healthcare, and then there's aesthetic medicine. So for years, aesthetic medicine has been more characterized by, I call it snake oil, okay? Lots of claims and very few actual deliverables. And so we always, we, we wanted to be different. Mm -hmm. We wanted to be that aesthetic company that actually delivered a result that a patient could count on and their physician could count on. Um, and, and so our first indication from the FDA was for a brow lift, non-invasive brow lift. So as you have an therapy treatment over time, new collagen is built underneath the surface of the skin and leads to a natural lifting. Our second indication was a lower face and neck lift. Again, an actual lifting from a non-invasive procedure. And then Terry Barnhill, who was our fifth employee, as we were getting ready for a national um, uh, business conference, uh, actually a global business conference in 2013, said, hey, I heard this great speaker by the name of Roy Spence. And so, well, what's his topic? Well, he talks about purpose, and he's co-written a book about how companies who actually take the time to establish a purpose that is broader than just doing their business inevitably do better than companies that don't do that. And there's lots of data that supports that. They said, well, it sounds great. And I saw some film clips of him. He seemed very entertaining. And so we invited him to our meeting. And he and I had had a couple of calls beforehand. He shows up at the Global Business Conference. And he's from Austin, Texas. He's got this deep Texas voice, you know, and he's talking in a drawl. And he said, I've been doing a lot of thinking about Ulthera. And it seems to me that you're more than a brow lift. You're more than a lower face and neck lift. I submit to you, Ulthera is all about lifting lives. And, oh, my God, we had 100 people in the room, and we all stand and cheer and roar and said, Yes, Roy. Yes, we're about lifting lives. And, you know, the next day we hit up and everybody shows up a little bleary eyed at the you know eight o'clock start of the next day's meeting. And we said, really? Lifting lives? Is that what we're all about? And um, and after chewing on it <laughs> for several months, we said, why not? We should be lifting lives in a lot of different ways and building people's self-esteem and leaving them, you know, in a better position emotionally for having communicated with any of us who represent our company. And so over the last three years, we've tried to live that way. And, uh, and I think it's really added to the meaningfulness of being part of this company. Well, and I would imagine, too, that that same lifting lives philosophy extends not only to the end patients who are having, whether it be a brow lift or a lower face lift, a non-invasive uh, procedure done, which certainly will have a great impact on their overall sense of esteem and well-being. But what about the physicians and, and practices and giving them an opportunity to continue to grow their practices amidst you know, relatively difficult uh, times uh, in being in the med medical practice and, and your teammates and your employees and giving them an opportunity to be a part of an organization that is doing something beyond just trying to grow top and bottom line. It, it sounds like it extends far beyond uh, and, and really is something that everyone uh, can, can buy into. Yeah, I, I think it has been that way. And in fact, we mapped out with all of the constituencies uh, with whom we deal, what can we do to bring more value uh, to their practice, you know, to their appearance, uh, to their self-esteem? What can we do? And, and had a very thoughtful process to do that. 
you know, our first big, hairy, audacious goal was to try to achieve 100% treatment efficacy so that every patient that gets treated gets the desired aesthetic improvement they're looking for. Um, and so we're not, still not quite there, but we're well into the 90%, which for an aesthetic treatment is, uh, you know, is, is really world-class. The second big hairy audacious goal, and it was actually linked to the efficacy, was as long as we're doing this, let's create a billion dollars in value. Uh, and, you know, all those years at Baxter, it was a very financially oriented company, and so I needed to have a financial result or a value that we were stri striving for as well. So we established that. And then our first operating principle was customer focus. So if, if a practice were to buy our system, we really thought about what can we do with a goal of bringing more value to that relationship with that customer over each year for the next 10 years. We, want, we felt like the, the technology had at least a 10-year lifespan within the practice, and what can we do to bring more value there? Marketing support, uh, new transducers to treat at different depths, additional FDA indications, um, free software upgrades. I mean, it was, hey, you're with us and we're with you and you're going to feel the love you know, for as long as you have our technology. And, and so I think all of those things added to, uh, to, to lifting lives of uh, the customers we were dealing with. So company culture is obviously a huge part of, uh, of, of Althera and it, frankly, a huge part of every organization. And I want to share with our audience uh, a quote from a blog post that came from one of Althera's investors, NEA, and they said, and I quote, despite the regulatory and market headwinds that challenged our initial investment thesis, we actually moved forward and increased our position in the company. Why? Because it had become increasingly clear to us that Althera was a special company, particularly their company culture. So my question, Matt, is for any leader in an organization, how do you how do you help make a company special through culture? What's the best advice you can give? I guess the best advice, uh, and you know, we were we were able to establish an operating environment here that. Um, we didn't just talk about it, right? We, we behaved in a certain way, and it was consistent throughout the organization. So, so often you have, gee, you know, the CEO saying one thing, but then in a separate meeting, or when he's not in the office, or his behavior actually, you know, is let's just call it disappointing or inconsistent. And, and at that point, you know, the management team overall has lost any chance uh, of having a group that's really all pulling in the same direction. So I, I think if it's one thing, it's authenticity, right? I think as an employee, and again, a former Baxter CEO, Harry Kramer, always likes to talk about, hey, remember when you were in the cube, okay? So, of course, here at Altera, we all have cubes now, which, which is fine, you know? Uh, but, but remember when you, and you always talk about, well, those guys don't understand, right? And those guys are always, it's always somebody, you know, at a higher level in the organization. Right. And he said, right. so why, why should you think differently, you know, if, if you're in the corner office, as they called it at Baxter, versus in the cube? 
we are all in this together. Let's act that way. Let's behave that way. You know, let's bring everybody along. Uh, you know, for this ride versus the uh, hierarchical thinking and not sharing information and on and on and on, all the remnants of, you know, kind of the madmen uh, mentality. So you've alluded to a couple of times, maybe a handful of times during our, our short chat today, that there are seven key operating principles at Altera that start with the letter C. It just so happens. You had mentioned customer focus. The second one is consistency. The third is constructive confrontation. The fourth is compliance. The fifth, cost effectiveness. The sixth, creativity. And the seventh, collaboration. Might I suggest that there's one that uh, you really display and have done so, and that's courage and, and courage in leadership. And I'm curious if you ever think of your leadership style, your leadership philosophy of of this we're all in it together mentality as a form of courage? Um, never. <laughs> I've never <laughs> thought of it as courage at all. I, you know, uh, I, I, I as, uh, as an outsider looking in, having spent time with uh, hundreds, if not thousands of leaders throughout my career, leading in the way you lead and having having had conversations with many members of the Althera team and the way that they just absolutely love being a part of the environment that you are doing that that you've created large part due to your leadership uh, I, I would say is absolutely courageous in a time and a place where hubris and narcissism and ego as you had mentioned uh, really is still seems to be uh, the dominant leadership uh, philosophy in business today. Yeah, well, th thank you for uh, for saying that, Brian. I, I appreciate it. I, I think personally, I, I feel really privileged uh, at a relatively late uh, point in my career to have had the opportunity to, again, bring at least my view of uh, best practices and, you know, the quote-unquote right way to do things forth into an organization where existed. Right. And, and to be able to establish something from ground zero so that we didn't have to change anything. All we had to do was establish, you know, with the help of many of our, our early Altherans, as we call ourselves, not Lutherans, you know, that's that's religious. <laughs> and there. OK, but but to establish that and then be true to that. And and so it, it's been a real kick. And, uh, you know, and, and we've had, uh, you know, quote unquote success. Right. Because so many startup companies just never quite make it. And uh, even with great cultures, they never quite make it. So you have to have a lot of fortune, good fortune, in, uh, in order to accomplish this as well. Well, yeah. And for those who are unaware, you know, uh, almost two years ago, roughly, Althera was acquired in what I think was uh, in the top five largest sales of privately held U.S. medical device companies in, in history. Um, what's it like to have? such an unbelievable acquisition and, and exit. What what's can you describe how that felt? Well we had filed to go public in January of 2014 and so submitted our S1 document and it was done under the Jobs Act. So all of that information was kept private for a period of 90 days. And we actually thought we would be in the public market uh, within that 90 day time frame. We, we got a very difficult reviewer from the SEC, and so we were actually on our third amendment to the S-1 document, 
when the confidentiality of our document uh, elapsed and it became public information. So at that point, three companies were able to see over the 300 pages of the S-1 document, the growth in top line and our, our growing uh, uh, earnings line as well, and they were interested in us. And, um, and so fortunate to have more than one company interested and there was a bit of an auction and then once we got to uh, the the price that uh, Mertz was willing to pay we did have to balance that against well gee what about going public it was still an option um, and, and so at the time you know it, it feels like you've achieved something but you're always wondering have we done the right thing for everyone you know the investors the employees uh, and and for the future, and so I guess you never know that, but it it feels like we did the right thing. Mertz has been a great partner for us, and so that feels even better. We've just grown the organization, so it hasn't been one of those acquire, crash, and burn scenarios that happens so often. So two years later, now it's it still does feel like it's the right thing to do. So from an advice standpoint, uh, for CEOs and leaders out there who uh, are being courted uh, to potentially have their organization acquired, what might be a great piece of advice that you'd want to share with a, a fellow leader uh, who is nearing an exit uh, that's likely going to be uh, them being acquired by, uh, by the right type of, uh, of partner? Yeah, a couple of things. So over the last six months or so, I've been in more discussions with early stage CEOs and management teams. And it seems to me that very early in the process, they decide one way or another what they're going to do. You know, so we really want to be acquired or we're only going to go public. We want to stay private. And my advice to them is to keep all options open build the company in a way where you can you can go public if you choose to, or you can be a very attractive acquisition for someone. And, and in a way, let fate determine, you know, where's the most value? What's really the best outcome for your particular situation? Don't limit yourself too early in the process. I think once you are acquired, um, you know, it changes. It changes immediately. And so just be prepared for that. I don't think anyone should sign anything longer than a one-year retention agreement as I approach the end of my second year here. And I won't make any other comments on that. It's just that, you know, once it's changed, you know, and, and things move in a different direction, I think 12 months is enough to transition effectively. And after that, we must get on with what we're meant to do next. So... Uh... That is a, a wonderful segue for me there, Matt. What uh, what does next look like for you? Yeah, so my son graduated from Syracuse University with a degree in broadcast journalism, and he's been working in sports talk radio in South Florida for most of the last ten years. And so, Brian, I'm you know you have a great voice. In fact, as we talked before, you say a number of people comment on. You know, you have kind of a soothing, deep voice, great for radio. Uh, and and so 
I'm actually trying to convince my son that he should take me on as a partner and we could have the first father-son or son-father sports talk radio show. I what, love, what do you think of that? I love that idea. And just, you know, and, and I appreciate the kind words. Uh, I also have a great face for radio as well, I've been told. So that's always helpful. I, I disagree with that. <laughs> you, you should be you should be on HD TV, no doubt. About it. Uh, you're buttering me up. I love it. So I was told I want to I want to end our time together. Uh, I was I was told by one of your teammates that in addition to the seven uh, key operating principles, there's a hidden eighth operating principle. It's not courage. It's not the one I suggested earlier, but the eighth C stands for corny jokes. And apparently you are able to tell some incredibly corny jokes. Um, so before I'm going to, I have to ask you to share one of your best corny jokes with us, but just to prime the pump here a little bit, I thought it would only be fair uh, for me to at least start and share a corny joke of my own. Uh, and this one comes uh, benefit from uh, my youngest daughter, who's nine years old. She told me this one on Saturday. And she asked, Daddy, what's the worst animal to ever play a game with? A cheetah. <laughs> That's good. Another C word. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I didn't even think of that. So uh, so I'm glad you laughed. Thank you for that. Um, sure. So, so can we end this with, a, with one of your better corny jokes? Is that doable? Well, I don't know. If see, I, I have kind of a very base sense of humor. I can't remember jokes, frankly. So but <laughs> plays on words. I mean, I, I love that. And also, I, I like the fact that we should not take ourselves too seriously. So, for instance, at Ulthera, right there, there's a condition in the marketplace. By, it's called hyperhidrosis. And these are people who have excessive perspiration. I mean that you just can't stop it. It is a medical condition and about 5% of the population suffer from this. And, you know, we were looking at focused ultrasound in plying the eccrine glands underneath the arm with focused ultrasound and ablating those. Could we, could we affect that condition of excessive perspiration? And after thinking about it long and hard, you know what the answer was? What's that? No sweat. <laughs> ah, that's great. That's great. I don't even know how to follow you that. Up. One, will you? <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Matt, uh, it's always, always a pleasure to chat with you. I wish uh, I would. Uh, again, I'll, I'll say again, having had the opportunity to chat with uh, a number of your teammates uh, a question I, I ask myself when I meet leaders, uh, would I go work for that individual? Could I be proud, uh, to spend my days and nights under a particular leader's leadership? And although, uh, it's not like I've spent a ton of time with you hearing from your teammates and the, the few times that I've had to interact with you, uh, the answer to that question as it relates to you is a resounding yes for me. So if you do decide to go start something new and, uh, you need someone. Uh, you need someone to maybe host a blog or a podcast or something for you. Give me a shout. I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to lend uh, whatever expertise I have, and I say that very carefully uh, to whatever cause you might be working on. 
Sounds good, Brian. In 17 days, I'll have a lot more time on my hands, so maybe we should have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Matt, thanks a lot. Can't thank you enough. Appreciate you spending your time with us. Yeah, thank you, Brian. I hope you enjoyed hearing Matt's story. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this episode or you want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.